I'd like to uh, start by telling you a parable. A parable about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer who barely kept his family fed. He was shooting at some food, and you may know this one. If you're 40 years or older, you may know it very well. It's funny that I remember episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies very well, even though I'm pretty certain I've not seen a rerun in probably 20 or 25 years. And if you're like me, I can't remember what I had for dinner two nights ago, but I can remember parts of my favorite sitcom. I can do episodes almost verbatim. And maybe you can. Maybe it's Seinfeld. Maybe it was Friends. Maybe it's Modern Family or Big Bang Theory or This Is Us. Let me try another parable of sorts. I served a a church uh, a number of years ago. My secretary came to me and she said, I can't reach anything on the top shelf in the workroom. Would it be okay to buy a step stool? Sure, I said. So we got a step stool, put it in the workroom, and it worked perfectly, allowed her to reach stuff on the top shelf. And then one day, she invites me into the workroom, and she points out how the custodian, trying to be helpful, had cleaned things up, including folding up the step stool and putting it on the top shelf. How often do we take that very thing that was created to make the inaccessible accessible and make it once again inaccessible? I don't know if that story is really a parable of sorts, but I tend to believe that we are all surrounded by parables and stories and tales whether we recognize them or not. But there is a tendency within our modern-day culture to hear a parable or a story, whether it was told around a campfire or read in a novel or seen on the big screen or heard from the Bible. There is this tendency to condense and compress to reduce and restrain the power of the narrative for the purpose of controlling the message, often consolidating the parable into a nice, pithy little saying that most everyone will accept as safe, commonplace, sensible. We conclude the reading of some powerful parable or story by saying, and it means this. That's it. Nothing else. Any questions? So be it. Let's move on. Yet when Jesus told a parable, he took some of the most distant, out of reach, incomprehensible concepts and brought them close. And yet even with the use of language like a mustard seed or a farmer that went out to plant his crops or an individual who threw a dinner party, what Jesus suggested, at least in my reading, was often not safe, 
or common or sensible. The, the simple parable he shared was suddenly alive beyond the words themselves, tickling the areas of our brain where imagination and creativity and wonderment exist. Suddenly the most common everyday idea was challenging everything one might have believed to that point. Everything that made us comfortable and confident was suddenly thrown up in the air and it reshaped how we thought about our life, how we thought about God, how we thought about our faith, how we thought about our relationships with one another. Rhodes Thompson was a professor a number of years ago at Phillips Graduate Seminary. Rhodes, in an event where I was with him, talked about reading a parable one afternoon. He was at home, sitting in the lounge chair, reading his Bible. He read this parable that he had read a hundred times before, probably more than that. And the parable had always challenged him. But this time, this time reading the parable, he had to get up from his chair and go to the restroom because he thought he was going to be sick. So sharp were the words in this reading that it felt like a a punch to the gut. Now, he didn't tell us what parable it was, and that was for a reason. As As he suggested that most every parable, most every story in Scripture has the potential of moving off the page and doing something so unexpected as to be more than what we had previously imagined it to be. Have you ever come across a passage of Scripture that you'd read before, maybe read multiple times before, and then something else came out of it? something you had never seen before. Or maybe you're sitting in a group, you're reading a passage, and you think you got it figured out. And then someone across the table says, but have you ever thought of this? And all of a sudden, I mean, everything changes. Don Alexander was the pastor at First Christian Church in Oklahoma City when the federal building was bombed. That church, a block away from the federal building, became the central location for everything that went on in the aftermath of that event. One of the things that makes me real proud of of our, uh, our publishing house, Chalice Press, is that we collected all the sermons that were preached the following weekend and we put them in a book. And it's a powerful book entitled, And the Angels Wept. But Pastor Alexander, in the preface to his sermon in it, said that the text that he had chosen for that Sunday a month earlier was the same one he preached on. And he was pretty sure he knew where he was going with that text a month earlier. But in light of the event, he saw things in that text that he had never 
seen before. Between Mike and Michael and Elizabeth and Chad and myself, the five of us that are going to be rotating around between our churches, we desire to talk about stories in these five weeks, our own stories that might be a bit parable-like or not, but to tell them not for the purpose of suggesting some sort of absolute meaning or some unquestionable platitude, but to tell a story that might tickle that part of your own brain where creativity and imagination and wonderment occur, and to maybe find in your own life a story a story or a parable or a message that speaks about hope, that challenges previously held beliefs, that calls into questions, question the voices of hopelessness that might be speaking in your own life, a story that might usher you into the presence of God, or maybe a story that pulls back the curtain just an inch or two and allows you to glimpse the nature of God in a way that you never have before. A story that might be a blessing to you, but a story that if you told might be a blessing to someone else. I have what I think are a few such stories. Though the one that may be the most important to me comes from my pre-teen years when an event in my family caused everything to change. Though to tell that story, I need to remind you of a parable, one that doesn't really require me to share it. Nonetheless, let me talk about a parable about a man that had two sons. And of course, the younger son went to the father and said, I want my half of the inheritance now, today. And it wasn't long with half of the inheritance that that son packed up his belongings and left for a distant land. There he wasted everything in what might be described as some wild living. He went through everything, every dollar, every bit of resources that he had, and then a famine came to that land. And he began to hurt, and he began to hunger. And so he took a job out in the field, slopping the hogs, and he was hungry. So hungry that he would have willingly eaten the pods in the pig's slop, but no one would give him anything. And it was there that he was brought to his senses. And he said to himself, all the farmhands working for my father are sitting down three times a day to meals. And I'm here starving. I need to go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against you. I do not deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And so that was the plan. And he got up and he started the walk back to his father's home. But while he was still far off, the parable says, the father saw him 
And the father had compassion for his son. And the father ran to the son and embraced him and kissed him. And the son started into his speech, Father, I have sinned against God and against you, and I do not deserve to be your son. But the father seemed to ignore him, called upon the servant and said, quickly, bring me a robe, the best one we have, and put it upon my son. Get a ring and put it upon his finger and sandals to put upon his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead is now alive. He was lost and now he is found. It is time for us to celebrate. A parable that I'm sure you all know on one level or another. Even the culture outside the church has some knowledge of that parable. But I remind you of that parable as I share with you the experience from my preteen years that shaped my family. One of my sisters, who was a young teenager, just a few years older than I was at the time, she got pregnant. And of course, I was not initially privy to the information. I was aware that something was happening. Our household was unbalanced. There was an unnamed tension in everything we did. But my mother, a single mother raising four children, this was not a part of the script that she had planned to write. But once everything was confirmed, and the inevitable was the inevitable, the reality of my sister's pregnancy needed to be shared. And it needed to be shared with among a number of folks, my grandmother. Now, it's important to know that I am a fourth-generation Christian church, Disciples of Christ. My great-grandmother was disciple. My grandparents were disciples. My mother is still a member of First Christian Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, a lifelong disciple herself. But my grandmother came not only from the disciples, but a certain group within the disciples. My grandmother was a big fan of a woman named Carrie Nation. That may not be a name you know. She, though, was the axe lady in the temperance movement. She was known for entering bars in the late 1800s and early 1900s with her axe and smashing all the alcohol in the bar. She was the voice against consuming any alcohol before the advent of prohibition. She was called the bulldog as she walked at the feet of Jesus, barking at everything that Jesus did not like. Though Carrie Nation died when my grandmother was still a young woman, my grandmother knew the stories. And my grandmother, like Carrie Nation, opposed drinking of alcohol by anyone, and especially Christians. Now, I tell you that as to provide some insight into who my grandmother was and to understand her perspective on faith. She was what I would call an old-time conservative, conservative in certain social issues, and yet she lived an incredibly simple life because 
she was so incredibly generous with her stuff. She had this wonderful uh, garden, and she canned stuff, and she gave it away left and right. My, my grandfather worked on, on the railroad and brought the, what were called hobos in those days, home to eat at their table. And so there was this sense of generosity, a liberalness to her. But there's another story. When my grandfather's sister in the 1950s came to their home to tell them that she was getting divorced, 1950s, my grandfather escorted her out of the house and told her she was never welcome in their home again. Now, two decades later, they did reconcile. But again, I share that as context for understanding the expectation especially in my mother's mind, of how my grandmother was going to respond to the news of a pregnant teenager. And not just any pregnant teenager, but her granddaughter. A short time later, my grandmother came to visit us. And the evening came for my mother to sit down with my grandmother I had learned the truth only a couple days earlier, and I was told to go to my bedroom as the two of them sat down at the kitchen table, but I didn't go. I kept around the corner because I wanted to listen to the conversation. It was not an easy conversation. It was not a short conversation, but it was made even more difficult by the fact that my grandmother didn't say much at all. But as the conversation, or we might have called it a monologue, came to a close, the front door of the house opened, and my sister walked in. And my grandmother, who at the time was probably in her early 80s, a very round woman, and at her height was about four foot ten, got up from the kitchen table and moved like someone half her age, She came running around the corner and down the steps to the landing where the front door was found and where my sister was standing. I didn't know what to expect. My mother did not know what to expect. I'm pretty certain my sister did not know what to expect. But my grandmother grabbed my sister by the shoulders and looked her in the face and said, what is done is done. I love you and we will figure this out. And she embraced her. I don't know exactly when it was, but it was only a few years later that I was reading the parable of the prodigal son. And suddenly the words jumped off the page of the father running to the son. The father not waiting for the son or laying into him and lecturing about all the bad stuff he had done. A father who was not going to dwell on the past, but was choosing to live in the moment. And for the first time, I think in my life, in my young life at that time, a parable in scripture was more than just a nice Bible verse. It was more than just a nice story that Jesus had shared. I told that story about my sister and my grandmother about 10 years ago at a women's event where I was speaking. And among the women that were there was a 30-something-year-old woman. And after the event, she approached me, and clearly she was very emotional. 
and she explained to me her experience of being pregnant at 16 and how her family had utterly rejected her. All along, she said, I have been hurting over my family's response. But until now, I had not fully appreciated, she said, the people that God brought to me. And there were many, she said, there were many who ran to my side, including a teacher who showed me love and grace. Yet I did not appreciate it in the moment because I was still so hurt by my family's response. I realize now, she said, that I was never outside the reach of God. Tonight, in this season of Lent, I offer you that story, not with any summary to suggest that here is how you are supposed to hear it, or to suggest that there's only one way of thinking about it. I retell it, and in that retelling, I find that the Spirit is able to teach me something anew even in this moment. I rethink that story, and I find myself challenged. I find myself needing to confess because there are times when God has called me to run to the side of an individual and I turned and walked in the opposite direction. I need to repent. It makes me realize how God can use a story over and over and over again to do something so unexpected as to be more than what I had previously imagined the story to be. It's a story that makes me thankful for how a painful moment in one person's life can be used to share good news in another person's painful moment. It makes me appreciate hope, hope that can sneak into our life situations in ways that we never could have previously imagined. If only we are listening, if only we are looking. What is your story? That's the question in part that we're going to be posing this next five weeks. Something that maybe on the surface may not appear all that significant. Yet it has the potential of announcing the gospel. How might God use that story to do something unexpected, something so unexpected as to use it in a way that you previously had not even imagined? When I was meeting with Mike and Michael and Elizabeth and Chad talking about this, I shared a story that came from my preaching professor, Ron Allen. He told us once that we're all standing upon the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. But that it's important for us to tile that foundation with some of our own stories, to make that foundation more real for us, and more real for others. The story I've just shared with you is one of those tiles for me on that foundation, which is Christ. 
It is one of the stories that helps me understand God, understand who Jesus is, the nature of who God is and what grace is. It helps me understand the power of Scripture. It helps me to better understand my place in this world. But I don't even think that story is done talking to me, even tonight. As we begin this five-week discussion, this really isn't about just the Wednesday evenings. It's about allowing the stories that you will hear each Wednesday evening to tickle those parts of your brain where there is imagination and creativity and wonderment. And I hope, I pray, that that is what happens over these next five weeks in the season of Lent. But it being the first night, I want to pose the question to you, what is it that hinders us from claiming our stories and telling our stories? And I'm just going to suggest a couple of things. I believe sometimes we just don't think our stories are all that good. You know, I think sometimes we expect, you know, there needed to be a blinding light. There needed to be people falling on their knees. There needed to be people confessing Jesus in the moments after. And somebody came up to me after one of my sermons and said, man, I love your stories. You know, some of them are very powerful. You know, how do you, you know, my life just doesn't have those powerful stories. And I, I said, what powerful stories? I said in the sermon, I told three stories. One's about potty training my son. One was about grocery shopping. And one was about being stuck in traffic. Tell me exactly what was so unusual and powerful about those stories. And he had this kind of strange look on his face and went, oh, yeah. We all have stories to tell. And I think the other part of it is we're not terribly good at being vulnerable. And so we want to tell a story that makes us sound really good. We want to be the hero in the story. But as somebody pointed out to me recently, why is it that in all of your stories you're the loser? or the fool, or the, well, that's kind of my life, just to be honest. Um, but at the same time, I think that that's sometimes helpful for people to realize that we're all kind of flawed and broken, and yet, by the grace of God, we are still valuable and usable, and that we all have stories to tell. And if it's okay, I think I'll end it there. Thanks for letting me come and share.